So the dust has settled. Everybody's breathing hard, recovered as ash, black soot marks from the gunpowder. We're all ready, injured but ready, to fight again. Until, that is, a light comes on the horizon. A beautiful sunshine-esque light that we cannot fully comprehend, yet it brings peace into our hearts. And the anger arc of Romans 9 through 11 comes to a close as the angelic choir begins to sing Romans 12. Yes, finally we now get to approach Romans chapter 12. This is going to be great. I hope you have your Bible open and ready for it. Let's go ahead and just jump right in to the first verse. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. All right, now stop right there. What's the therefore, therefore? St. Paul just spent three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, explaining how things work, how salvation being by Faith meant the entrance of the Gentiles into the church, into God's Israel, and the breaking off of unbelieving Jews from God's Israel. He explains all of this over and over and over again, but that has a therefore to it. What does all this mean in my daily life? What am I supposed to do about all of that information? How do I live as a Christian in light of that? Finally, St. Paul is going to give us the praxeological or frenetic implications of this new normal. By praxeological, we mean here's your practice. Here's how you go about your Christian life. And frenetic means wisdom. What is your practical wisdom, i.e. hard commands, but it's still wisdom too, what is your wisdom for living as a Christian? So that is what the therefore is there for. Everything is now going to flow into this new normal. What is the new behavior of a Christian? Because God does not just save you and then tell you, okay, go about your merry way as though you had never heard of Jesus in the first place. Oh, no, 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 no. To the contrary, we start reading again in Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now let's get into that verse by verse because it sounds simple at first, but it is incredibly complex. He says, I appeal to you brothers by the mercies of God. He does not appeal to these brothers. This Christian church here in Rome, he doesn't appeal to them based on the law of God, the hard commands. Oh no. He's appealing based on the mercies of God. In light of what Christ has done for you, for mercy for you, so that you can be saved, so that you Gentiles over there, you were forgiven of your sins, and where formerly you were pretty much excluded, now you're a member of God's church. And you Jewish Christians over here, you who have been freed from the law and brought to a new living faith, 
Because of the mercies that God has given to all of you, the forgiveness of all of your sins, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What does that mean? It means that there is a flip side to the basic Lutheran thesis. Now, what is that and why would I call it that? The basic Lutheran thesis, the heart of all of our theology, while somebody might say that it's sola fide, there's something behind sola fide that, well, informs that. The basic, most fundamental understanding of Lutheranism is that God is for you. That's it. Every single line of the Apostles' Creed, you can tack on the words for you or for me as you recite it, and it makes perfect sense. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, for me. Yes, Lutherans believe that the entirety of creation was one massive act of grace. God creating an entire world for us human beings. And there's really, really stinking good evidence of that, but that'll be when, whenever we cover Genesis, really. But then we go further. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary for me, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried for me. He descended into hell. We don't know why, but we know for me. The third day he rose again from the dead for me, as scripture does proclaim that he was crucified for the forgiveness of our sins. And St. Paul says in the book of Romans, he was raised for our justification. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father for me. In the book of Hebrews, we've been going over that where Christ does serve in an office as high priest for us offering up prayers and speaking to the Father on our behalf, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead for me. Because when Christ returns, that is for my ultimate deliverance. I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to be in the new heavens and new earth. It's going to be fantastic. I look at the Holy Spirit, the third article or third portion of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting for me. Because all these things that the Holy Spirit is doing in bringing us to church, and bringing us to holy communion, in bringing us eternal life, being the person who is going to raise us up on that final day, it does not make sense if it is not for me. It doesn't. The basic thesis of Lutheran theology is that God is for you. He loves you. He does just about everything on account of how much he loves you. This is John 3.16. Kids learn this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have everlasting life. This is a core aspect of theology that if you miss it, your theology is going to be all out of whack. But there is a flip side to this, that if we miss it, maybe our theology is correct, but our Christian life is all out of whack. <laughs> I love that I get to say all out of whack. 
I'm a theology podcast. This is great. Anyway, if we miss this second half, this flip side to the basic Lutheran thesis, we have failed as Christians. And it comes here from Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. How do we summarize this? If God is for me, if that's the core of everything in my Christian theology here that I am going to believe in, then I must be for God. I must be for him. Period. That's the flip side. I must now live my life to please him. I must now live my life sacrificing everything that used to be a priority for me in my sinful human ways. No longer am I living to get drunk on the weekends. No longer am I living for porn. No longer am I living to get one over on that sucker that I conned to get more money. I'm not living for money anymore. I sacrifice all of that stuff. I sacrifice the old Adam and put him to death daily because now, in response to all of the mercies of God, I am for God. I am for him. I love him in return. And yes, weakly at first, God frees our will when he regenerates us so that we may gladly and spontaneously serve him. But however weakly now, I have made a decision to follow him and to serve him with all of my being. Now, the sad thing is, there's only one group in Lutheranism that seems to get this, that if I am saved by faith and God is for me, that he saved me without any merit of my own, therefore I must dedicate my entire life to him and be for him in everything. The only group in big Lutheranism that seems to get this is the pietists. Unfortunately, a disease in Lutheranism, even confessional Lutheranism today, is getting the first part of our theology correct and then never applying it. We have this, in fact, a kind of theology that seems to have been formulated in order to keep people away from the pietistic urge to be for God. Instead, we have this feminine idea here. Oh my goodness, do we ever have it, that Romans 12 counters hard. There is an idea that you as a Christian are just waiting to die. You are supposed to be a flaccid, wet blanket, do-nothing, floppy noodle Christian that subsists on faith and the sacraments without ever thinking that you should have the gall to exercise the freed will that God gives you. These are the kinds of people that say, ah, yes, Radical grace, you're forgiven of everything, so just live the way you want to and go to church on Sunday and celebrate the sacraments, the sacraments, the sacraments, the sacraments. They forget that the sacraments bring us life. I am saved in my baptism, the merits of Christ being applied to me in that moment. Yes, with Christ's body and blood in the Eucharist, I am brought forgiveness, strengthening of faith. But the thing about being made alive and forgiven is that living things do stuff. 
Living things, living people walk around, they say things, they do things, they move their hands, they take steps. And the weird passive feminine theology here that is enthralled like half of confessional Lutheranism is everything wrong right now with the synods. They find it so necessary to defend sola fide that the very thought that God wants you to do stuff just scandalizes them. But on account of that unfortunate development, they are tacitly denying everything that St. Paul is arguing for here in Romans 12. Now, sorry for the rant here. I know you want me to be doing, you know, Bible, but this is an incredibly important chapter here. This is so excruciatingly important. He tells us to be living sacrifices. Not dead sacrifices, living sacrifices, meaning your life is a sacrifice. You give up the old Adam and crucify him daily, drowning him in the waters of your baptism so that you can be holy and acceptable to God. Yes, he has already, at the moment of your justification, declared you holy and acceptable. That is your initial sanctification. But you should live that way. You know that you don't deserve it. You have no merits on your own that says you deserve God calling you holy and acceptable. So you should live that way. You should live in such a way to seek greater holiness, to seek to be more acceptable to God, even though he's already accepted you. Because it is on account of that mercy. It is thankfulness that motivates us in this. And he calls this spiritual worship. I would hold that in contrast to material worship. You're giving things to people. You keeping your mouth shut instead of saying a swear word or taking the Lord's name in vain. You getting in your car and going to church on Sunday. That's all material worship. The stuff that you do with your body that has to have a motivation behind it a heart orientation that motivates and spurs on those actions in the material world. That is your spiritual worship, saying, God is for me, therefore I am for God. I will live as a living sacrifice for him. That's your spiritual worship. If you just go through the motions of being a Christian, if you devolve into the formalism that Kierkegaard criticizes in the Danish church, then you're not really worshiping God. Maybe you are materially, but your heart's not in it. Your spirit's not in it. You need to have a spiritual worship. This is St. Paul making the case for Lutheran pietism in just one verse. But he does continue here, and we do need to uh, <laughs> make some distinctions to keep from excess here. Verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There is a temptation that has hit the church for century after century to say, Aha! Spiritual worship, do not be conformed to the world, time to go be a monk, time to go be a Gnostic, time to say that I just hate everything in the world, no matter what, I'm going to starve myself to death. Oh yeah, this is another huge problem in Lutheranism and in Christianity as a whole, 
where instead of seeing verse 1 as the pattern which we have spiritual worship, which motivates our material worship, instead we have an idea that now we have to reject everything that appears like it has anything to do with the world. It's very similar to the reductio ad Hitlerium arguments that you see online. You know who else believed in socialized medicine? Hitler. You know who else breathed air? Hitler. You know who else cared about their family? Hitler. Like, the church does this with the world. It's stupid. Oh, you believe you have a right to self-defense fighting back when somebody tries to kill you? Look, pal, that's the world talking right now. That's you being worldly. After all, the world operates on an eye for an eye kind of thinking. And here you are saying you're just going to get vengeance when somebody assaults you. That's what the world does. Oh, you care about your kinsmen? Uh, racism much? That's what the world does. That's how the world operates. This verse has been used as a cudgel here to keep people from acting in ways that God designed them to act in. To keep them from expressing the imago Dei. You loving your children more than other people's children? Having a hierarchy of love as God commands? <laughs> That's worldly. Actually, no. Us here at the Southern Baptist Convention, we now believe it's perfectly okay for strangers and impenitent sin to put your kids to bed at night because now the church is your family. No, that's not what St. Paul is saying here. Spoiler alert, the man still ate food. You know who else eats food? The world. The, the enemy of Christianity, yeah, all those people still eat food. You know who else has kids? The world. Yeah, all those people out there in the world, enemy of the church, they still have kids. It's silly to extrapolate from this verse that you cannot be a human being. Yet, unfortunately, again, the church is out there demanding that people stop being human beings, acting contrary to the nature that God gave you in an attempt to force you to act contrary to your sinful nature. Well, what does St. Paul really mean when he says, do not be conformed to this world? Well, what is the world? The world, this world, that enemy of the church, as we've said, the second enemy, you know, you have the, the devil, the world, and the flesh. That is organized humanity trying to be God. They've taken every gift of God and used it for sin where most people eat, you're supposed to eat food for nourishment and to make you better and healthier. A worldly understanding of food is to hedonistically devour things like a pig until you die of a heart attack. Where sex is supposed to be for reproduction, for bonding between a man and his wife, for rejoicing in this wedding present that God gives you to make you one and produce godly offspring, the world interprets it as a hedonistic opportunity for sin. To mindlessly, like a pig addicted to drugs, uh, just continuously live for orgasms and nothing else. St. Paul says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, where all behavior and actions and motivations are for sin for self-deification at least, and humanity's deification at worst. Don't be conformed to that. You live for God now. All of your actions, motivations, everything should be for God when you eat food. 
It is with thankful hearts that we eat our daily bread. When you make love to your spouse, it is rejoicing in this gift that God has given you, this gift of a spouse in the first place. The world makes money to have money. They want money. They want to steal. They want to live off of greed here. Instead, you make money so you can be generous to your neighbor. So you, absolutely, you got to fulfill your responsibility to take care of your own, but also be a gift giver. God loves a cheerful giver, right? That is being unconformed to this world where your motivations based on your spiritual worship are based in piety rather than in worldly sinful desires. Pietism is not trying to be the most holy in a holiness contest where you earn God's favor and maybe a little bit on the side denying sola fide. Uh, no, pietism, properly understood, is an emphasis on personal piety so that we are not conformed to the world, but are instead engaging in spiritual worship as living sacrifices. Now, St. Paul gives us an alternative to being conformed to this world. He says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You are now thinking differently in your baptism. And from that moment on, God changed something about how you think. We no longer think in terms of what's best for me in my life and in my interest. We are now thinking what is best for God. What does he want? What pleases the one who saved me? We're thinking in terms of loving our neighbor, not what does my neighbor do for me, but instead what do I do for my neighbor? That is the renewal of your mind. You are now thinking differently because of this core change that God has worked in us. And so he says that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now that term testing here is like testing metals out, refining them. Now that you are a Christian, you are enabled and really freed here to want what God wants. And you got to spend time figuring that out. That is a part of the process of sanctification. So by testing as a metal, right, this process of purification, testing things out, learning what pleases God and what his will is, you learn what's good, acceptable, and perfect, and you live that way. That is the emphasis on sanctification and growing in piety that is so important as a therefore to what God has done for us. I have learned that God is for me. And I have also learned and decided that I am for God. But now I got to learn how to do it. <laughs> now I want to progress in sanctification and emphasize that and rely on the Holy Spirit to guide me through that walk so I can be a better person and please my God. Now with that, somebody's going to ask, but what's the will of God? How do I find out the will of God? Great question. It might sound a little bit like I'm mocking it, but it's something that everybody goes through. Everybody wants to say, what is God's will for my life? What's his plan for my life? We have helps there. We have many helps from the scriptures. We have the Ten Commandments. 
We have Christ's commandments, especially in the Beatitudes and everything he tells us to do. We have the apostles here, especially in Romans chapter 12. Next week, we're going to get more into what St. Paul is telling us we ought to do here that help us discern that will for God in our lives. Now, the bulk of that is going to be in simple obedience. Obedience to God's commandments as best as we can. And then confession, going to church and receiving God's mercies when we mess up. And we will mess up. We're going to screw up in this walk. <laughs> I guarantee it. You're going to sin. I sin still. I hate it. But we go to the Lord for forgiveness, for protection, and we rejoice to continue learning from his word. Moses is no longer an antagonist that wants to destroy you. Moses is now your friend teaching you how to live for God. Again, namely in the Ten Commandments, we don't want to get into the really, really weird sects of Christianity that try their best to be well, not Judaizers, but also total Judaizers. I am a dominionist disrespecter, but we'll get into that later. For now, we can understand and start with the Ten Commandments as the basis here for what we do as Christians and why we do it. And we rely with the Apostles' Creed and with the Gospel given to us in Scripture to understand what God continuously does for us. We'll get into that next week as St. Paul starts to look at how each individual can express this spiritual worship and how everybody ought to act one to another. Wow, we covered exactly two verses today. I'm a little proud of myself for getting that far. We could have spent the entirety of this recording on just one verse. But bear with me. This is definitely worth the extra attention we're paying on it. Catch y'all next week. Amen and amen.